Good morning. Glad to be back with you this morning. See if you remember this line. Show me the money. One of the most famous lines in movies, and Jerry Maguire is a down-on-his-luck sports agent. He's lost every last customer, uh, every last sports star he has, and that's the thing that he has to shout at the top of his lungs in the middle of his office so that he can keep the last guy, right? Money. They say that there's two, the two hardest things to preach about are sex and money. And I got number two. I'll let Travis have number one. It's Labor Day weekend. Labor Day has been around for over 125 years. And it was started to celebrate what the average worker does to contribute to our country. Now, the irony of Labor Day weekend is is it's become such a shopping holiday that the single largest sector of our economy, of jobs, is retail, right? And so the people that, in theory, this holiday is for can't take the day off because they have to work because the rest of us are shopping. If you look at commercials, if they're not selling beer or dating sites, they are trying to save us money. Financial planning, discounts and in car insurance in 15 minutes, or maybe that was seven and a half. Low interest rates and rebates on cars while ironically trying to separate us from our money. It's all over. And if love reigns supreme in pop music, money is clearly number two. I did a search on songs about money, and it, this interesting thing happened. Pop songs. In 1933, Ginger Rogers sang We're in the Money. In 1946, the Andrews sisters sang Money is the Root of All Evil. In 56, Elvis Presley sang Money, Honey. In 1963, the Beatles sang Money, That's What I Want. 76, Willie Nelson sang If You've Got the Money, I've Got the Time. Donna Summer in 1983, she works hard for the money. In 1997, the notorious B.I.G. sang, More Money, More Problems. And it goes on from there. Your kids would know the, the next couple. We are obsessed with money in our culture. The problem is, we don't seem to know what to do with it. I did a quick search on money in American culture, and I found these facts. From July 29th of this year, USA Today says that more than 35% of Americans are delinquent on debt payments. And that means it's gone to collections. And things don't go to collections usually until they're 180 days past due. Think about that. According to debt.org, and think about, let's sink in for a second, the fact that there is such a thing as debt.org. More than 160 million Americans have credit cards, and the average credit card holder has at least three. On average, each household with a credit card carries more than $15,000 in credit card debt. And total U.S. consumer debt is at $11.4 trillion. That's mortgages, auto loans, credit cards, and student loans. That's over $36,000 per person in the United States. 
The Wall Street Journal just a couple weeks ago said that only 48% of Americans could cover a $400 emergency bill without borrowing or selling something. In June, USA Today said that 25% of Americans have no emergency fund. And again, this last month, CNN Money reported that 31% of Americans have no money for retirement. Zero. So while we're fairly obsessed with money, we really aren't very good at it. Show me the money indeed. As we start this morning, would you pray with me? Father, money can be a difficult topic. It touches us where we live. It makes us nervous. It reveals our priorities. And I pray that today we would see just a little bit of what Proverbs tells us about the way we should look at money and how we should use it, how we should not. Pray that as we move through these passages today, that you would convict us and help us to become more like what you would have us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Proverbs has a great deal to say about money. In fact, 15 of the 31 chapters say something about it. Because of that, and because this is sort of a topical deal, I wanted to tell you what I'm doing today. I'm not sticking in one passage. We're going to be going all over Proverbs. And this is partially because of the nature of Proverbs. We're going to look at all kinds of different things about money. And I want to start by looking at the idea that it's complicated. See, if you're like me, I don't know... I like logic and order and simple instructions. I get a little bit frustrated when you have to put together furniture or something that comes from a different country and they don't quite get the translation right and it's very confusing. I want it simple. The problem is life, money, it's complicated. And as we've learned over this series on the Proverbs... Proverbs aren't necessarily hard and fast rules. Boom, do this, and you're good. They're more like rules of thumb or general principles, and you have to find the right one for the right situation. Here's an example of what I mean. Proverbs 10, 22. Um, this is from uh, the NLT. It says, The blessing of the Lord makes a person rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And then if we read Proverbs 28, 6, we read, Better to be poor and honest than to be dishonest and rich. So let's think about that for a minute. 10.22, God gives wealth. 26.6, it's better to be poor and honest. Wealth is a blessing of God with no sorrow, and it's better, better to be poor or unblessed what gives? I mean, let's be honest. When we're poor, that often causes sorrow, right? It's complicated. And we have to look at this whole thing. What does Proverbs tell us? And then learn to apply the right rule for the right situation and try, instead of trying to cram the square peg in the round hole. And that's what we're going to do today. It's not as simple as do this and everything will be okay. 
We're going to get to principles for using our money well. But first, I think we need to talk about some basics. Ironically, Proverbs really doesn't talk about money as such for the most part. At least not the way we think about it. Because for a great deal of the Old Testament time period, money didn't exist. Wealth was not about coins and certainly not about paper money. It was about flocks. It was about land. It was about the stuff you owned. The issue was poverty and wealth. And that's what Proverbs speaks to. It's really the same issue that we face today, just a little bit different in the way that it works itself out. And there's a whole host of issues that we could talk about. But we want to f- I want to focus on a few. So if we look first at poverty, what is it? This is what the Encyclopedia Britannica says. It says, poverty is the state of one who lacks a usual or socially acceptable amount of money or material possessions. Poverty is said to exist when people lack the means to satisfy their basic, their basic needs. In this context, the identification of poor people first requires a determination of what constitutes basic needs. These may be defined as narrowly as those necessary for survival, or as broadly as those reflecting the prevailing standard of living for the community. The first criteria would cover only those people near the borderline of starvation or death from exposure. And the second would extend to people whose nutrition, housing, and clothing, though adequate to preserve life, do not measure up to those of the population as a whole. So, two different ways to look at poverty. My sister spent 13 months in Uganda. She's getting ready, raising funds to go back people that she lives with in Uganda live in poverty. Where she lives in Uganda, a family of four could live very comfortably on $10,000 a year. Comfortably. Try that here. So there is real poverty in that sense, but there is also poverty in the sense of You can't make it work where you're at. And they are both real, and we have to be uh, able to recognize that. We have to not look at it as a one-size-fits-all. Financial hardship can hit anyone, and it just looks a little different, but it doesn't make it any less real. And as we think about poverty, we have to ask the question, what causes it, right? Is poverty caused by foolishness or injustice? Proverbs seems to say both. In Proverbs 10, 4, and 5, we read, Lazy people are soon poor. Hard workers get rich. A wise youth harvests in the summer but one who sleeps during the harvest is a disgrace. Of course, this is a famous passage in chapter 6, verses 6 to 11. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. 
Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. And then there's this one, 2117. Those who love pleasure soon become poor. Those who love wine and luxury will never be rich. So what is the writer of Proverbs telling us? Laziness. Love of pleasure. It's foolish behavior. It will lead to poverty. That's what he's saying. I found it interesting. Not long ago, Forbes magazine published the fact that 61% of the rich, and by that they mean people who make $250,000 or more a year, drive the same Fords, Hondas, and Toyotas that the rest of us do. Not luxury cars. The idea is simple. Not love of pleasure, not pursuing frivolous things, hard work, discipline. Those are the things that stop poverty. I found it also ironic that it was the class below that rich class that was more likely to buy the luxury cars to try to make them feel like they had more. All too often, not only do we want it, we want it now. A perfect example, I think, is the lottery. Personally, I don't have anything against the lottery as long as you're clear on one very important fact. You're not going to win. It's not really even gambling, I don't think. Dave Ramsey calls gambling, or calls the lottery, attacks on people who can't do math. Why? I mean, think about this. Every state, I believe, in the union has a lottery to help fund the general fund, usually schools or something, and then they take money from that and give it to something else. Why do they do that? Because it works. The house always wins. They always bring in more money than they give out. So if you can afford to give your money away like that, tell yourself you're paying for the school district or whatever, fine. But I think there's probably a lot better things you could be doing with your money. And most of us really can't afford that. But when we think about it, okay, fine. Sometimes people are lazy. Sometimes people just want stuff. And they're not willing to work for it. Okay, I can accept that. But I know people who are poor. And they work hard. Through no fault of their own, they're not making ends meet. They're not foolish. They're not lazy. You know them too. And maybe you're in that boat right now. And Proverbs agrees with you. In Proverbs 13.23, we read, A poor person's farm may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it all away. Sometimes, poverty is caused by injustice, not by foolish behavior. 
And we need to recognize that. Not everyone who is without work, not everyone who is homeless, not everyone who is suffering is lazy. And we need to use discernment to realize which one applies in which situation. And we need to respond appropriately. This is not an either-or. And this is the problem we get into when we turn to one passage in Proverbs and look at it without the larger. Both things are true. You see, the fool needs to be shown his foolishness. And the one who's poor because of injustice, because they're oppressed, usually by the people who have money, they need to be given a helping hand. And it's too easy for us to look down our noses at people who have less than us, to think it's their fault. You know what? Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's more complicated than that. But in every case, Christians are called to compassion, regardless of the cause. Jesus told us to care for the poor. James in 127 tells us that pure religion that is pleasing to God is taking care of widows and orphans in their distress. That means it is our job as Christians to help those who need help. We have to care for the poor. And we need to be very careful about the way that we treat those who have less. This is what Proverbs 29.7 says about it. The godly care about the rights of the poor. The wicked don't care at all. If you do not care about the situation that the poor are in, you have a heart problem. You are not following what God is telling us to do. And in my mind, this is an indication of true poverty. You see, it's tempting to think that poverty, based on that definition from Encyclopedia Britannica, is simply not having our basic needs. But true poverty goes way, way deeper than that. In chapter 15, verses 16 and 17... The Proverbs writer says this, Better to have little with the fear of the Lord than to have great treasure and inner turmoil. A bowl of vegetables with someone you love is better than steak with someone you hate. So true poverty is not, on, not just having only a little. It's not lacking the finer things in life. True poverty is inner turmoil and going through the motions to get good things while we're seething inside because you can't stand the person you're with. True poverty is giving in on the little things that matter to get just a little bit more. 16.8 says, better to have little with godliness than to be rich and dishonest. 22.1 says, choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. You see, godliness, not riches, is the key that we're seeing here. Poverty of the soul is doing whatever it takes to get ahead. And it's the mistaken belief That true happiness and fulfillment is found in the accumulation of stuff. 
There's a George Carlin routine about that. It's a little bit profane, so I won't say it, but he's right. It is the belief that reputation doesn't matter as long as you get what you want. True poverty sacrifices everything for the sake of self-gratification, thinking that in so doing, we will achieve wealth. Which brings us to the question, what is wealth anyway? Dictionary.com has an interesting definition. There are six points that they give. First, a great quantity or store of money, values, valuable possessions, property, or other riches. Two, an abundance or profusion of anything, a plentiful amount. Number three, in economics, all of the things that have a monetary ex- uh, or exchange value or anything that has utility and is capable of being appropriated or exchanged. Number four, rich or valuable contents or produce. Number five, the state of being rich, prosperity, affluence. And number six, an obsolete definition, happiness. In short, wealth is the stuff of value that we have. It's always relative, if you look at those definitions. Somebody's always got more and somebody's always got less. Do you see the inherent trap there? Wealth has a tendency toward comparison. Do I have enough? Do I have more? We want to keep up with the Joneses. On a side note, I have a solution to keeping up with the Joneses. You marry her and make her change her name. Right? Then you don't have to keep up with her anymore. Some of you will get that in a minute. But it's that sixth definition that I want to focus on for a minute. Happiness. The word wealth in the English language is very interesting. It comes from the mid-13th century, and it meant happiness, or prosperity in abundance of possession or riches, and it was from a root word that meant well-being, and it was connected to the idea of health. And it's telling to me that happiness is connected to wealth. On the one hand, it's hard to be happy when you're constantly worrying about your next meal, constantly worrying about providing those you are responsible for those around you. But on the other hand, it's all too easy to get this idea that in order for us to be happy, we've got to have the right stuff. Right? We've got to have the money, the house, the car, the whatever. We can tie our happiness to the things we have, not the people around us or the God who has saved us. Now, I want to be very clear. Wealth is not a bad thing, and nowhere in Scripture will you see that. God blesses us with wealth. That's what Proverbs says. But wealth is dangerous. In Mark 10, 25, Jesus says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why would he say that if wealth can be a blessing? Because when we're wealthy, we have a tendency to think that we did it all. 
When we have stuff, we have a tendency to think that we don't need God. And because, let's be honest, for our daily needs, most of us, we don't. Most of us, as Americans, can quite literally afford to live like atheists. We don't need to rely on God. But still, wealth is not an evil thing. If you think of the parable of the talents, the idea of being wise, of gaining a return on investment, is not only not evil, but refusing to try is. That's what that story teaches us. So is wealth a blessing from God or the result of hard work? The answer, of course, is yes. 10.22, we saw the blessing of the Lord makes a person rich. He adds no sorrow with it. 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. God blesses those who follow him with wealth, not sorrow. That's what Proverbs tells us. Psalm 50.10 says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That is, God's wealth is so far beyond anything that we can imagine. And if he owns all of that and he is our father, why would he not give to us? Now, I would be remiss at this point if I didn't point out what I consider one of the greatest heresies of the Western church today. It is being exported around the world and it takes advantage of those who have little or nothing and have little access to sound teaching. It preys on their poverty. And ironically, it is birthed here. And I don't throw around the word heresy lightly. I hesitate to use that term. But prosperity theology, the teaching that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and in some instances free of demons, is heresy of the worst kind. It sells people a false promise, and it sullies the name of God. Pastors and teachers who are all happy and smiles with hair that doesn't move and tell people that listen to them that God wants them to have it all and have it now are proclaiming a deficient gospel. They lead people down a false path, and God never tells us that if we follow him, he is going to give us everything we want. In fact, the opposite is true. What did Jesus says to, say to his disciples? If they hated me, what do you think they're going to do to you? The apostle Peter, in his letters, tells the people that he's writing to that they are living in exile and that they're going to suffer for their faithfulness. This is reality, and anyone who tells you otherwise is lying to you and probably wants what's in your wallet. Jesus came to make you wealthy, but by inviting you to become his, a child of the king, not by giving you stuff. That is the heart of the gospel. But here's the thing. The reason why prosperity theology is so insidious, why it works, 
is the fact that God might make you wealthy. The fact that it takes the rules of thumb in Proverbs and turns them into promises. It looks at the stuff about God rewarding us and forgets to tell us about the suffering bits. Because both are true and prosperity theology wants to focus on one and make you forget about the other. Furthermore, many who listen to those teachings, frankly, they want it all. They want it now, and they don't want to work for it. Laziness might bring poverty, but the inverse is also true. 10, 4, and 5 that I read before, lazy people are soon poor, but hard workers soon get rich. A wise youth harvests in summer because but one who sleeps during the harvest is a disgrace. What is the writer of Proverbs telling us? If God gave you the ability to work, do it. Work hard. Don't be lazy. Prosperity is the result of hard work and wisdom, not the lottery. Of course, just like in that section on wealth, there's a problem, and some of you no doubt feel it personally. Trusted in God. I have followed him. I've done right. I've worked hard. God, what gives? I can't get enough. I'm barely making it. It is a real, it is a legitimate and frustrating question. And I wish there was an easy answer. Boom, give it to you, and it's over. These are the words of Asaph in Psalm 73. Verses 1 to 6 and verse 12. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people and they're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. God is not afraid of the question. Doesn't bother him. It's in scripture. And if you struggle with this issue of why God I would invite you to read through that entire psalm. It is amazing. It both sympathizes with our plight and convicts us because it reminds us of the reward of the wicked in the end. would also add we live in a fallen world, one tainted by sin, and it will always affect us. Look at the book of Job, who did nothing wrong. The Bible does not hide from this issue of the righteous suffering. It does not hide from the issue that sometimes we struggle. And God is not worried about you crying out to him. He would prefer that you do. As we continue to look at wealth, there's one other aspect that we need to examine, and that's getting it the right way. See, when we don't have, we're tempted to cut corners, to 
leave our convictions behind and compromise our commitments to live in a godly manner. Proverbs warns us away from this path. In 11.18 it says, Evil people get rich for the moment, but the reward of the godly will last. 13.11, Wealth from get-rich-quick schemes quickly disappears. Wealth from hard work grows over time. 21.6 says, Wealth created by a lying tongue is a vanishing mist and a deadly trap. And 22.16 says, A person who gets ahead by oppressing the poor or by showering gifts on the rich will end in poverty. See, Proverbs tells us that evil people will get rich. Dishonesty and oppressing the poor will get people rich. But it's a trap. Getting wealthy that way is not the way we are to live as Christians. We are to be the opposite of that. And when we're not, we show our true poverty. So, Proverbs has a lot to say there about poverty and wealth. Let's get practical for a minute. How do we handle money well? Does Proverbs, what does Proverbs have to tell us about this? This is not a financial planning session. It's a sermon. So I'm not going to give you advice on budgets or markets and the relative merits of a Roth IRA. There's plenty of good resources available for those things. Instead, what I want to do is look quickly at three principles for proper use of money. These are the things which will help us as a foundation for all of those specifics we need to do with budgets and everything else. First is prudence. Proverbs 6, verses 1 to 5, the writer says this, My child, if you have put up security for a friend's debt or agreed to guarantee the debt of a stranger, if you have trapped yourself by your, your agreement and are caught by what you said, follow my advice and save yourself. For you have placed yourself at your friend's mercy. Now swallow your pride. Go and beg to have your name erased. Don't put it off. Do it now. Don't rest until you do. Save yourself like a gazelle escaping from a hunter, like a bird fleeing from a net. What does that mean? Bottom line, don't do stupid stuff with your money. If you can't afford to lose it, don't put yourself in a situation where the money's going to go away. Don't co-sign on loans. Don't tr- loan to untrustworthy people. Don't spend what you don't have. Fairly straightforward. Oh, by the way, if you've done it already, do everything you can to get yourself out of that situation. Sooner or later, it will bite you. Be prudent with your money. Really, with all of your resources, your time, your skills, whatever it is, don't be frivolous. Be like those ants. And I would add, think about what we've already seen about poverty and wealth. Love of pleasure and pleasurable things, indulging in them, is going to lead you down a path you don't want. That means, on Labor Day shopping weekend... That spending your money on the best deal, the latest, greatest, what's it? The iPhone 6 is coming out in a month or whatever it is. 
retail therapy is not going to get you what you want. Save. Be wise. Be prudent. That's first. Second, be generous. 327 and 28 tell us don't withhold good, but to help those who are in need. And in 2827, we read, Whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eye to poverty will be cursed. Gaining wealth is not simply so that we can behave like Scrooge McDuck swimming around in our stacks of money. I don't know if you, some of you are too young to get that reference, but we're supposed to use our money for good to help those who need it. It's not complicated in this case, though it's not always easy. That is a generous spirit, and that leads us to a proper perspective on wealth. First was prudence. Second, generosity. And third, have a right perspective. 23, 4, and 5 says this. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. Work hard. Gain wealth. Perfectly fine to do that, but make sure you realize it's not going to last. Realize you can sacrifice too much in the pursuit of it. And where are you then? Finally, as we close, we need to realize that Proverbs tells us one thing very clearly, and that is wisdom is better than wealth. For all the instruction on wealth in Proverbs, and I've grabbed a lot of those verses, but not all of them, if we focus all on the wealth and poverty and we miss the point entirely if we don't see that wisdom is more important. 11.4 says, riches won't help you on the day of judgment, but right living can save you from death. Puts it in perspective, doesn't it? The Beatles sang, money can't buy me love. Proverbs says it can't get you into heaven either. Godliness, right living, not our own righteousness, mind you, but God's at work in us, that is a different story. At the end, wealth is not about us anyway, not really. We need to remember that we're to put Christ first in all of that we do. That is what we are called to as Christians. final passage that I want to read. I want you to hear the words of this because it is so important. Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Oh God, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. Second, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough 
to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. You see, as we read during worship time, as David talked about, our lives are to be a living sacrifice. That's Romans 1. Romans 12, 1. A mind that is changed by God. That's Romans 12, 2. Our lives are to be a living sacrifice. Our lives are to have this attitude of Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. And the only way we can do that is by putting God first and the money somewhere down the line. And that leads us to the place where we have the proper perspective on poverty and wealth. May we go into our world this week and live that way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you are what's truly important. That you know our needs and our desires. That you alone are what can truly satisfy us. Pray that as we go forward this week, that we would put our hearts and minds on you first. And that in so doing, we would put money, our money, your money in its proper place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.